Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast that discusses current events, relevant topics, and emerging issues in pharmacy. I'm your host, Carly McMore, and together with my producer, Jared McMore, and the Australian Journal of Pharmacy, we are bringing you a podcast that draws on the opinions and expertise of pharmacists from all settings and experience levels, from those pharmacists who've already been a voice in the profession to those who've never had their voice heard before. In this two-part episode of the AJP podcast, we hear from many people in the profession about the interconnected nature of pharmacy remuneration and pharmacist remuneration. We hear from people outside of Australia, highlighting that this is a profession-wide issue, regardless of setting or jurisdiction. We hear from newly qualified pharmacists, students, and those with decades or more of experience. We hear from employees, employers, educators, advocates, and representatives of the profession. One thing remains clear. No single person or group has all the pieces to help funders see what we are worth. This is an issue that affects all pharmacists, and understanding all the aspects can be challenging. I find that there is a disparity between skills, knowledge, and reimbursement for pharmacists. When I've discussed with this with members of the public about the minimum wage pharmacists are paid, the response is usually one of shock. I believe that this is an issue that is not well known, and the fact that our job is described as administrative and having not changed significantly since the last wage change, I feel this dishonors the pharmacy profession and does not reflect our abilities. I also find it quite challenging with the consequences for errors that pharmacists who provide an administrative function have, which can include losing a registration or criminal charges for a very low minimum wage. I question how the pharmacy profession can be both an administrative function and a profession that a single dispensing error can lead to deregistration, suspension and court cases. We will start by hearing from Sam Cattenpah and Jacinta Johnson about risk versus reward and the recognition of value. I think that's really good that you brought up that risk aspect because I'm seeing that a lot and a lot more in the media these days is that we're seeing where errors happen and pharmacists are being increasingly pressured to be taking responsibility. So I absolutely agree that in respect to risk, that figure should should be increased. We should be being remunerated for that risk. I think I'm a little bit sheltered from the issues that a lot of the profession are experiencing around remuneration because I work in the public hospital system and the university system and there we're quite well remunerated and there aren't the gaps between uh, pharmacists and other health professionals that you might see out in community. Uh, but certainly I agree with um, a lot of what the PSA have been working on uh, around recognising our value and making sure that we are remunerated for that and for the huge responsibility that we take on. Uh, so we really put ourselves out there every time we dispense a script. There's a huge amount of accountability that comes along with that and I think we should be uh, appropriately remunerated for that risk um, in the same way that other health professionals are um, and that our services should be viewed in the same way. So if they get paid for a consultation where they provide advice um, like uh, a dietitian would or uh, any other health professional, then we should be remunerated uh, for that same advice that we give uh, in our specialist area around medicines. Carolyn Huxhagen discusses the impact of service caps on the ability of accredited pharmacists to earn an independent income and how funding models don't recognise the value of pharmacists. Um, so pharmacy remuneration for me as a um, consultant pharmacist is a probably a hot topic because in the sixth community pharmacy agreement um, there's capping 
and so that's affected my ability to earn a living as a, a consultant pharmacist because my pr- primary source of income was home medicine review. And so the CAPS then made me have to change my whole professional, uh, how I was working and where I was getting my income from. Then when you apply remuneration to the other um, things that I do, I spend a lot of time involved in projects and um, projects within the six CPA, projects within the health and hospital reform package. And pharmacists have a invisibility cloak that seems to go around them because when you say, you know, when I'm asked to do this work and I say, well, I'm willing to do it and I'm interested in the in what you're doing um, and how can I, what's my payment, often the answer is, oh, well, pharmacists are paid out of the six CPA package and, you know, you need to use whatever's in there for your payment. And I go, well, no, that's not quite how it works. And so there's a lack of awareness by um, government and regulators that w- the ability for someone in my position to gain in, uh, a remuneration for my expertise and my involvement is very limited. So that is a problem for me. Ravi Sharma discusses the differences in funding considerations for pharmacists versus pharmacies or health services that employ pharmacists and the UK perspective. So I suppose uh, it depends what you're looking at in terms of as an individual practitioner, as a pharmacist and where that remuneration comes from, or as a business entity in terms of a pharmacy. If we're looking at, we start at pharmacist level, There are various type of models that can bring in remuneration for yourself as a pharmacist. You can be a locum pharmacist where you have flexibility to work across the healthcare sector and work in hospital, work in community pharmacy and you get paid a rate per hour generally and you might get some further incentives if you hit particular targets or you are um, doing additional services that go beyond traditional pharmacy settings for instance Um, you could also be contracted by a main employer so you could be working in a community pharmacy a GP surgery in a hospital pharmacy but also in academia or industry and have a contractual relationship with your employer and get and remunerated in that fashion Um, I would say from a pharmacy perspective there is um, NHS led services that would and the NHS go into a contractual relationship Um, with the community pharmacy and they get paid for the services outlined within that contractual framework but then community pharmacy also have the ability to receive remuneration from the sale of over-counter medicines and p-line medicines but also any other additional private services that they may choose to run. Would you say that pharmacist wages are growing in the UK stagnant or moving? I think um, pharmacy wages have there's two types so there's probably the private sector, where, where you get paid, in, particularly in primary care, is led by mainly contractor-type models in, term, in terms of that. We definitely see within community pharmacy and other areas of community services where the salaries are, tend to be initially a bit more higher than the NHS salaries, for instance. Um, um, and that's been a thing for a number of years. And that's because the NHS has a, an agenda for change, paying banding scales. So pharmacists would go up that ladder as part of the agenda for change scale as they develop as a clinician and as they continue to specialise, become a prescriber, for instance, etc. Um, I would say 
it depends what people define as good remuneration for their jobs. I would always say that if you are a clinician that's contributing effectively to healthcare, you are prescribing at the top of your license being a true medicines expert, then I think you should be fairly remunerated at a, at a salary that is reflective of your contribution to, to clinical care. Graeme Smith describes to Cathy Reid and Jared McMore the New Zealand experience of pharmacists competing with each other for roles and discusses the role of advocacy groups in creating the discussions that generate change. So do you, do you have issues in Australia with um, pharmacists wanting to be concentrated in urban areas and, and the, the rates are lower in urban areas because there's a surplus of pharmacists and the rural areas just can't get people no matter how much they're prepared to, to pay? To a degree, but the reality is that the proliferation of pharmacist numbers did, did go a long way to resolve that because it was either, well, if you want a job, then... You will you, go you've got to go, you've got to travel. Yeah. So in, in New Zealand, the Auckland urban area, uh, wage rates, and this is one of the things that prompted us to do the salary banding document, wage rates have got as low in New Zealand dollars of $23 an hour for a pharmacist and 25 for a locum. The average in New Zealand is about $35 an hour for a pharmacist and more like about 40 or where I, where most of my pharmacies are, $45 an hour for a locum. It's a huge disparity. Mm. And Auckland's the most expensive place in the country to live. You, say you can't buy a house for under a million dollars. It's nuts. Um, I, I'll give you a bit of context there. Um, and maybe my background as well. I think uh, So I'm regarded as somebody who's always got an opinion on something and is fairly disgruntled most of the time. But one area that I have not been is my own personal wages because um, my first employers got me to what was the average for rural New South Wales very quickly. Within two years of being fully qualified, I was on $40 an hour. That's 16 years ago now. Now, you'll be hard-pressed finding many pharmacists who are on that at the moment. Then most of them aren't at $40 now. I wasn't angry about my wages, otherwise I'd be with them instead of PSA. Um, now... Uh, that's the union, by the way. Um, and the average in Melbourne is about 28. Um, and that is for very good um, experience, like greater than 10 years. $28 an hour is about the average in, in Melbourne. But if you go to the country, it's, it's significantly higher. The supreme irony in all this when I look at the four pharmacies that I've got an ownership stake in is the one that has the highest gross margin, which achieves 42%. Is propped up by Estee Lauder Clinic in Long Kong. The one that is just in a medical centre and, and is just purely providing pharmacist services has the lowest gross margin of 33%. That's very strange, isn't it? Yeah. Because our core business mm. isn't able to really sustain an actual business. And the one where I should really be paying the pharmacist more in the medical centre is, is less able to do it. Mark Norton discusses the impact of oversupply of pharmacists and equipping pharmacists to perform roles that make them more competitive. Are pharmacists getting paid adequately? Uh, Yes, I think some are. Are pharmacists getting paid inadequately? Yes, some and many are. Um, Have we got a good structure in place for payment? No, not necessarily. Um... Can it be improved? Yes. So where are the problems? Where are the, where, what, where are the issues that uh, people have with remuneration? Um, they're largely in capital cities, and that's as a result of uh, an oversupply, uh, which, like most things, when there's an oversupply, drives down prices or, or wages. Um, 
how do you fix that? Well, some people need to fix that themselves um, and they can reinvent themselves. Um, there, there are other opportunities for them to um, sort of perhaps negotiate better. Uh, but the, I guess the services that pharmacists can deliver and get paid for, um, pharmacists perhaps need to be better equipped uh, uh, to go and to undertake those services. Um, we've got, and that's part of the evolution that pharmacy is going through at the moment, or change that pharmacy is going through at the moment, so those roles are being developed. Uh, and we haven't had much development in the way of these new, new roles since the HMRs and the RMRs were developed, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So uh, I, th- I think it, it, will, it will come. We only have to look at the other models that happen overseas. We look at some of the models that's happening now in Australia with the pharmacists in general practice. Um, I think ph- some pharmacists don't value themselves um, as they should uh, or could, and again, we saw some data that Chris Freeman presented where we see uh, f- uh, general practitioners and, and some of the data that we've had locally where patients uh, are willing to pay $200, up to $200 an hour. Now, that's probably not the, the, the usual uh, hourly rate, um, but from what we've seen in our, our work in general practice, you know, the median salary could be $60, $65 an hour, which is a lot higher than the sort of $25 an hour that we, we occasionally, or perhaps not so occasionally, hear some pharmacists are getting paid. Um, but perhaps that's not just the problem. It's 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 the the ability to move from $25 an hour up. $25 an hour might be appropriate as an intern, um, but they'd want to see a, a sort of a sliding scale up a little bit more quickly than what we currently have. Sam Turner discusses remuneration, professional satisfaction and demonstrating value in the workplace. I've had the same experience. I've had students uh, come and do placements uh, with me and um, and it is important that uh, we are advocates for our own profession. Um, that being said, um, not everyone has had the ability um, or, for example, the uh, experience that I've had with, with good mentors and good people who have always uh, shown enthusiasm and, and, um, and uh, encouraged me to really embrace and, and excel within the profession by expanding my knowledge and, and my scope and looking at opportunities. Um, I guess it's up to, it's up to both um, the pharmacists out there who know where the satisfaction comes from, and that's the patient engagement, that's the, um, the ability to really make uh, changes to people's lives, in my opinion anyway. Um, it's up to us to be advocates both for up-and-coming and, and future students, but also for those pharmacist colleagues that we do see. Um, a lot of those comments on that page are from pharmacists as well, and they're within the first few years of their, of their career, and they're not getting paid what they believe they should or, or what potentially they should. But also I, I, I do like to and I do want to challenge those pharmacists to um, what are they doing over and above within their role to really ensure that they are deserving of more remuneration. I think um, 
this is just across society. I think um, people want to go to university, get a degree, and then expect that they're on a six-figure salary straight out of university and that they deserve is a deserving culture, right? Um, but until you can actually uh, show, um, for example, that that um, that it comes from enthusiasm um, and it comes from coming to work and, and, and showing what you're worth um, and then getting satisfaction from showing for what you're worth and then also getting rewarded um, for what you're doing as well. Um, and I think there are... Like there's a lot of examples out there of people who are really doing amazing things and getting excellent satisfaction from their work, and um, they are getting uh, rewarded from it both on a monetary and a and a, and a satisfaction point of view as well. So, um, I think those students um, out there or, or those pharmacists out there that are dissatisfied, I think they need to um, potentially try and change um, the whether it's uh, looking for other opportunities within the profession, uh, talking to people. There's uh, the PSAs working on a, on a uh, mentorship program um, where uh, it will, uh, I think it will really combat and give an opportunity for a lot of these situations for people to, um, people to uh, challenge this dissatisfaction and actually have other pe- members of, of, of the profession there to support and, and give advice on, on what to do in these situations but also um, how they can... Um, how they can you know, change their practice to enable that as well. Anthony Tassoni discusses misconceptions about the minimum award rate and its use as the norm rather than the bare minimum. The minimum award rate is a safety net, a minimum safety net of remuneration. It's not meant to reflect a recommended rate. It's not meant to recommend or or be mindful of the market rate. I mean, a market rate could be very different to the minimum award rate. And the Fair Work Commission, they don't necessarily take into account for their deliberations what a market rate is. I mean, and also there's some misunderstandings amongst our profession where the Pharmacy Guild, as a service to our members, put together wage sheets to help inform our members what the you know minimum award obligations are. And we put our logo on there and people think, oh, that's the Guild rate. That's the rate that the Guild... And the Guild doesn't set it. The Guild doesn't... Um, you know, put in place what award rates are. We are a stakeholder, as is the PPA, in informing the Fair Work Commission on this process, and they are the independent umpire and determinant. And we have an obligation to inform our members, obviously, of their minimum obligations as a registered organisation under the Fair Work Act. So, you know, there's times when I question whether the Guild should put our logo on wage sheets if people think that they're the rates that the Guild seems to be, uh, they believe, are actually setting or recommending. It's not the case. It's just the minimum. Lily Pham, Tina Blafari... Jess Hassau and Sandra Minnis relate the perspectives of students and interns in their concerns about remuneration, including the data that NAPSA gathers each year about student perspectives of the industry. I think I can say on behalf of students and interns um, that we are very, very supportive of remuneration. Um, Of course, I think from the data that we got from the National pharmacy um, pharmacy student survey, we found that a lot of the time students were very concerned about pay rate um, and this particular NPSS, um, they actually had an increase of 10% in pay rate concern and remuneration, um, of course, is going to really address this issue. I think also remuneration um, really increases that recognition of a pharmacist's role in their community and that's a really important part of 
being a healthcare professional as well. Um, so much of the time we're seen as, sometimes at least, we're seen as a glorified shopkeeper um, and having that remuneration and recognition um, as well is going to help with kind of shifting that public perspective of our role within our community. I think as well it would drive motivation from the students to kind of see um, wages and that recognition um, elevated over time or however long it takes for these things to take place because there's nothing worse than being in a position of knowing you're passionate about your field but then someone not quite understanding it or not being recognised for how much potential the field has I think is one and then also how valuable you are to kind of establish that healthcare hub and how much of a professional you can be in the healthcare centre Um, and I think if we want to be valued as a profession by other professionals we need to start from us and we need to start um, showing that internal support internal recognition um, and that remuneration from the kind of pharmacy bodies to the pharmacists themselves. Yeah um, as students it is hard going in and all the talk about underpay um, we're not getting recognised enough so as the student body um, we are going to make the student voice heard especially with our NPSS data um, and just let everyone know that we are all working to get the right pay for the right recognition for all the professional services that we provide as pharmacists. Yeah and I was definitely talking to a lot of the guild members about that Um, and it's great to see that in the CP 2025 strategy that they're really addressing that remuneration aspect of particularly community pharmacy um, and seeing that influence so from such an influential body in pharmacy is really quite inspirational and motivational for us students as well. So if I look at it from a student perspective and um, through my time working with NAPSA or being part of NAPSA we do have surveys that we send out every year Um, so pay is a big issue amongst students um, with around 63%. Um, that believe that pay is inadequate and um, I think a goal for NAPSA is to determine what that pay should be or what students believe that pay should be Um, and I guess a question to ask ourselves is what we can do about it and what we can do about the remuneration issues Um, and obviously there's um, scope for more funding through the community pharmacy agreement um, as well as uh, pharmacists being on the MBS and I know that's something that in general practice is starting or pharmacists within general practice is starting to become um, more possible and feasible so hopefully that continues to grow throughout um, pharmacy. Um, I guess also we're listed as retailers but we are health professionals so that's something that I think um, should change and hopefully if we're recognised as health professionals that will I guess determine remuneration and pay. Um, Kathy Ree discusses the importance of a pharmacist in demonstrating their value and demanding recognition for that value. I think it's important too for pharmacists individually to be very proactive in demonstrating to their employer what they're actual what value they're actually generating in that business. I mean, I, I remember when I was working in a retail pharmacy back in the 90s, I actually went to my employer and said, "These are my this is my average sale number. This is what the this is what the." 
other team, you know, use the data from the point of sale system to demonstrate what I was actually generating in terms of sales versus some the, the rest of the team, what margin those sales were being generated as, and said, you know, I am actually creating significant value for you here, and I'm motivated to do it, but you know, there, this actually needs to be treated with a degree of fairness as well. I'm creating the value for this. You reward me for what I'm doing. That's going to motivate me to go even harder and do even more. And I think it's easy to fall sometimes into a into the position where complaining around the status quo and hours and uh, an average, you know, salary pay rate per hour and everything. I think actually taking that on yourself and using tangible demonstrations to take to your employer to show what value you're creating and why they need to be valuing you because of the important role that you're playing. I know our, a lot of our pharmacists do that all the time. It's a really compelling argument. Elisa Poloni discusses the fact that pharmacists shouldn't settle for minimum wage because our training makes us worth much more, but we also have to deliver on that value. Jared McMore talks about the importance of delivering on this value to ensure we are not performing a technical role with no clinical input. I understand the need for a minimum wage. I have never and touch wood cannot imagine a set of circumstances where I would ever need to pay a pharmacist the minimum wage. I believe that pharmacists are highly skilled health professionals and that they should be remunerated accordingly. I believe that our pharmacists perform a critical clinical function and I think that pharmacists more and more these days are, you know, not just dispensing um, like the days of old, you know, we're often performing clinical services, um, intervening in the healthcare of our patients. If you're listening to this podcast and you feel that your role mainly revolves around dispensing, then that's probably something to discuss with your employer, particularly if you feel like your wage is low um, and is, is and does reflect the minimum wage. You know, we also need to make ourselves worth um, a lot to the businesses that we work for. We need to make sure that we pull our weight. We're trained to contribute very, very greatly to the healthcare system. And I, and I would like to think that if you are performing that role within any pharmacy in this country, that you would be recognised for that contribution and that you would either be remunerated um, because, immediately because your workplace would recognise that or that you could start a conversation to, to have that rectified um, for you. It's sort of interesting when you talk about um, dispensing. A lot of people get the impression that dispensing is to enter a prescription into a piece of software and then to stick stickers onto the paper and onto the box, ensure that those things agree with each other and then send it on its way. And the number of people that I speak to who believe that that's what dispensing is is probably a bit alarming. When it comes from outside of pharmacy, it's like, okay, that's what you see. I get where that perception comes from. When it comes from a pharmacist, it's worrying, a bit infuriating, a bit, a lot infuriating. When it comes from a pharmacist who doesn't work in community practice, that's... Um, is very irritating, but perhaps also um, understandable, I guess, if they're not really seeing what, what it is that goes on. Um, I, I get a little bit frustrated with the idea of the label clinical pharmacists being applied to one practice and not another when community pharmacists are making clinical decisions every minute of the day. It's quite interesting when you look in a bit deeper. I mean, 
if we have pharmacists out there who are practising in that way and that's what they're doing, then they shouldn't be getting paid the minimum award of a pharmacist. They should be getting paid a technician's award rate um, because that's what they're doing. But everybody who's putting any kind of clinical thought into their um, work needs to be remunerated in a way that is valuing that work because it is way, worth way, way more than what we currently have. Graeme Smith discusses the value in paying for an employee's training and the concerns the Pharmaceutical Society of New Zealand have with pharmacy wages not recognising expertise. One, one of the things that I've been strong on is training and all of my pharmacists are trained at my expense to provide extra services, vaccination, warfarin monitoring, um, oral contraceptive resupply, trimethoprim prescribing, sildenafil prescribing. But I'm happy to do that, even though I have to pay them more wages because they're more skilled, because actually that training that they've undertaken gives them more job satisfaction and it actually gives the business more income, so everybody wins. Pharmacist wages is an issue that the Pharmaceutical Society has been concerned about for some time, and pharmacist wages haven't really risen in real terms in the last... 12 to 15 years. So last year we took our courage in our hands and put a salary banding document together and put it out in the marketplace and it's created quite a bit of controversy when we first put it out because we were suggesting that most pharmacists in community pharmacy need at least a 20% pay increase. And when the pharmacists, employee pharmacists and my own included, um, saw this document they came saying you need to pay me more. Um, the, the positive effect it's had is, is it, it, it further up the scale where we're seeing new roles emerging in, in our equivalent of PHNs, uh, the, the employers are looking at the salary banding document and saying, well, that gives us some good guidance, and we're starting to see people starting in new roles that are remunerated properly. But we're not going to be able to address how well we pay our pharmacists in community pharmacy, which is about 70% of the workforce, until we've got a decent deal for community pharmacy. And I think you, you, you're probably well aware that in New Zealand we're under a lot more funding pressure than, than you've been in Australia for dispensing and we've had to survive on slimmer margins for a number of years. We're just in the process of what I think will be a, a new landmark contract instead of negotiating a new one every three years rather than every five as you do here. There's been a, a, a almost 12 months of consultation putting together an evergreen contract so the basic clauses of the contract will remain the same, but it will be subject to annual review. Um, they're not looking at putting an awful lot more money in there, but there's going to be a lot more flexibility for services to deliver locally. Um, that does start to ring some alarm bells, because as far as patients are concerned, the prospect of postcode health becomes an issue, where services are available on one side, one side of a a street and not on the other where the, where the provincial boundary falls. Um, and it also raises the, 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 the issue of some pharmacies not being big enough or, or having a large enough client base to be able to be able to provide some of the services that are more highly remunerated. I can't talk, I can't talk in too much detail because I don't actually get to see the full final version of the contract until Tuesday of next week. And I'll know an awful lot more then. One of the interesting things about the process, though, is um, the Pharmaceutical Society has never been a partner to the negotiations before. It has always been done by the Guild or, or sector agents representing the Guild and Green Cross Health, which is a franchise or, and ownership organisation that controls about 34% of the 
pharmacy numbers, but 50% of the pharmacy market. But the society will now in future have a role in service development as part of the contracting process. Um, I don't think it, it, it's right that we should be in, engaged in the actual price negotiations, but I'm sure that as part of developing the services, we'll be telling them what they think they're worth. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please send an email to ajppodcast at appco.com.au or follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast.